0: Thank you for joining us for this next episode of Beyond Allyship, a series from Green Card Voices focused on engaging with different immigrant and cultural communities around ways we can stand in better solidarity with our Black community. I'm Asha Tanki, Podcast Manager at Green Card Voices and a Gujarati American writer working at the intersections of gender, queerness, caste, and class.
1: And I'm Tree, or Tri, Social Media and Marketing Manager at Green Card Voices, as well as the host of the Green Card Voices podcast series titled Love Your Asian Neighbors. This week, we're releasing part one of a two-part conversation with Darian Spearman and Lily Luo, both doctoral candidates at the University of Connecticut. Keep an eye out for part two in the coming months.
0: Darian Spearman is a PhD candidate at the University of Connecticut. He specializes in Africana philosophy, philosophy of myth, philosophy of religion, philosophy of science, and philosophy of education. Though he currently lives in Willimantic, Connecticut, Darian has roots in Chicago, Seattle, San Diego, and Carbondale, Illinois.
1: Lily Luo is a scholar, poet, and visual artist who loves engaging with the thoughts and spirituality of queer women of color. Lily's art and scholarship revolves around queer love, intersectional justice, and Asian American identity. She was previously working as a faith-based community organizer before joining the political science department at the University of Connecticut. In her spare time, Lily loves to garden, bake, and dance with friends. Her spirit goddesses are Audrey Lorde, Gloria E. Antildua, and Grace Lee Boggs. You can find Lily's work on her blog, theyellowlilyblog.wordpress.com. So my name
2: is Lily. I go by she, her, her pronouns why Asian Black solidarity is important to me. I've taken a lot of inspiration, both as an activist, community organizer, and academic from Black artists, thinkers, and history, um, and specifically in the U.S. context. You know, that's sort of a more movement-based answer. I think a more personal answer too, which is very interconnected, is that specifically I would say Black, female writers like Audre Lorde or Bell Hooks or singers like um, Billie Holiday or Nina Simone. After reading their work I think it gave me permission to feel and to create new understandings of my own identity as well. Their ability to speak on their own experiences and, and the beauty that comes from their art and their work not only have inspired me but I feel like I've created really fruitful grounds for a lot of different communities um, and specifically other women of color to just live and to love um, and to find joy. And so I'm very grateful to that lineage. Um, and I think that, you know, taking inspiration, having gratitude also necessarily means being in solidarity and being alongside the struggle and not just taking the work and the joy, but also being being alongside different communities for the struggle
3: as well. So I'm Darian. I use he, him pronouns. I'm here because Professor Friendly asked me to come. No, I'm kidding. I'm here because I mentioned in how America and the world, but right now America is going to transform itself. And I don't see how that's going to occur without some types of new forms of alliances between groups of people. And I hope that it maybe even will turn to new forms of identification between groups of people, right? I mean, identification has been a big part of how movements have functioned in around the world, but in the U.S. in particular, and maybe that's a bad idea, but I think that new forms of identification are a big part of it, and I see these discussions as building bridges towards these maybe kinds of different kinds of identity, which we'll talk about. Some of them people don't like, like people of color, but that didn't exist before, and people created it as a form of identification, and it, and it does do work. It's one of the reasons why we we're in this space together, right? but there might be new and different ones that might need to emerge or new or old ones. With those basics out of the way, we
1: can go into this more freely flowing conversation that starts with the article that was shared, that I shared with the group on Letters for Black Lives. It was written by a writer over at the podcast and newsletter, Time to Say Goodbye, talking about addressing, written by Andy Liu, this phenomenon of young Asian children of immigrants and refugee parents about anti-Black racism and what, what it means for for this for the, these letters to exist and what their aims are. People have been talking about how movements, the, the uprisings have come kind of lulled in the past month, the initial spark that caused um, momentum have not, dis- not dissipated, but definitely s- slowed. And there are questions of like, where, what does it look like to sustain this energy and sustain the demands that for things like police abolition or defunding police?
4: Something that comes immediately to mind for me is the way that we sustain these movements by finding continued moments of action. A lot of folks in my circles have been really activated by the recent asylum case. And finding ways to discuss what it means for a Sri Lankan f- fleeing conflict to have been, you know, to have appealed his case and then then been denied asylum, and for that to mean that folks can no longer really appeal their cases—that the Supreme Court has taken that away—connects for a lot of my circles with the question of, you know, borders, uh, the state of the police and prison, the role of ICE, and all of that again connects back to, I think that origin of the movement for black liberation. I think finding these continued moments of, you know, what we see as one political moment here is always connected to the next political moment. So that they don't stand isolated, but that we see those threads throughout throughout them. I think that has helped keep, um, you know, fervor from dissipating within my circles, Um, continuing to make those connections between different ongoing battles and seeing how, you know, we're fighting towards a very similar aspirational future on many fronts.
2: That's a really, really interesting thought to start us with, um, Tree. I was, when you mentioned that, I was thinking um, about, so this past week I was facilitating a racial justice summer camp for some youth of the Episcopal Church of Massachusetts, mouthful, and it was really interesting because one of the things that we were Uh, the organizer who was uh, teaching them about racial justice work and specifically racial justice work led by uh, Black and Brown youth in Massachusetts um, from this organization called I Have a Future. She was saying that there's a lot of myths associated with organizing work or movement work. And one of the myths is this, there's two myths. One is Um, a really charismatic leader myth and the other one is spontaneous combustion and basically what she was talking about was a lot of people see figureheads of movements and believe that the movement is led from there and all the ideas come from there and a lot of people see these big explosions or moments um, so to speak and believe that that is the movement Um, And, and, you know, and I think she obviously was speaking from a community organizing perspective and someone who does this all the days of the years. Um, And she was saying like, people don't see the work and the organization that happens to make those moments, you know, possible. Um, So yeah, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, there is this feeling of urgency and a feeling of exceptionalism to the moment we're in. and, And I think that that is true. Um, but I think what is also true is that many people have been invested in these issues for a long time, and I've been thinking about how do we not just go from moment to moment, but find sustainable, joyful ways of, of revolting, of, of pushing, of creating new ways that actually don't always put us in this, we need to get to the next moment. We need to get to the next moment. Whereas, this, whereas I'm thinking about like sustainable, joyful ways of creating new relationships with one another. I think conversations like this are one aspect of it. And I feel like in those instances, the more local things are, the more it, it can be knit into our lives in a, in a long-term way.
3: These are great things that you guys said. I just want to add that um, crisis management is one of the major governing styles of the current regime. And I mean that in terms of how things are institutionalized. And so a lot of us have witnessed and participated in a lot of crisis management. And we tend to not, our society tends not to respond to things until they become a crisis. And then it's not trying to solve it, but manage it. And this is why I have a friend who talks about how a lot of people from business are going to politics and because managing things is now what we try to do. And I think that like what Lily was saying, that there is this kind of need to build community structures that can receive the energies of these moments. If you think of like like water or something like that, right? It's something that can be held or contained and and, and used for various purposes. But if it's just like, if you just build the structure to match just oh man all this, this energy is manifesting we have to capture it and use it well then it's, it's going to dissipate pretty quickly and i think that also we have to be real about how systemic and sustain the efforts of the u.s government other nations to destroy these communities and destroy organizing work and destroy things that have been built so we don't have as good of a foundation for so many things as we might and so we are very much in a process of foundation building which is great in a lot of ways but it means that realistically some of the crises we may not be able to respond to that well or at all if we're also building foundations for movements in the future. That's one, and to what Asha was saying, I think that there has to, in terms of like infrastructure, there has to be something involving information because for example, this asylum case, I had no idea about it, right? And for Asha, she was saying like this for her is a manifestation of how the energy of George Floyd is continuing in her circle is into this asylum case, I have no idea about it. There is a process that can, it's an opportunity, there's a process by which we can kind of share information and I could learn why this case is important, what it means. And it could be something that maybe over time could be something that people could respond to from different communities. Because realistically, I do see a lot of people in communities I know, if I mention this case, unless I explain it very well to a lot of them why they should care, they're not gonna be like, yeah, I'm on, you know, like, I'm going to be involved There's also kind of information education type structure
4: kind of thinking darian about what you were saying i'm thinking about information spreading though and i'm thinking about you know those instagram posts that have been kind of a lot of folks way of you know participating in um the movement for black liberation but you know to whatever performative degree or actual degree is always up in the air for question, but What I'm really thinking about is also you know the sharing of information that happens now across social media and I'm actually thinking back to your original question about those letters and how those letters have become in many ways these Instagram posts that people share on their feed right it's one thing to be writing the letter to your grandparents or you know your extended community but those things those letters are now also the same thing that's appearing on people's Instagram feeds as this like gauge of okay friend if you haven't seen this like this is my way of more information to you i guess i'm just making that connection in terms of you know there are the letters which are perennial which like have been in existence since you know in my mind like the early 2010s but i'm sure it's even before that i think that's when they came across my radar and just thinking about you know that question of you know there's so many posts that are like hey has your feed returned back to normal you know how do you how do you keep energy going and also whether that's a question kind of to speak to back to what Lily said, is that just a question of like moment to moment, like how does that get sustained in people's actual actions in their daily life beyond just like that performative Insta story post. But I guess that's just where my mind goes first thinking about what both of y'all have said.
3: Yeah, I I think what the the thing interesting about the letters is in the article is that the author, she links them to kind of a liberal white centered project. And so there is a strong question to be asked about what purpose do those letters actually serve right it seems like it's very much a kind of moral issue right in the sense of like it's wrong that you have this it's wrong that you use darky toothpaste but you don't understand and but there's but there's nothing that really contributes to a concrete movement or bridging the gap right this is also because for example this space those letters seem like they're intra community and this space is already trying to be in between communities right and truck communities and so for example there's no project of like sharing these letters or with black people that's just one example of like but maybe because it's not actually that effective a community but maybe it is to share these letters with these people i don't know but it does seem like it's it's very much about like establishing to yourself and others that you have a certain kind of racial consciousness and perhaps maybe a naive belief that educating your grandparents or your parents is going to make them have a different political orientation towards the world that's kind of how i felt about what you said
2: I think just to go off of what both of you were saying, where is the relationship building in those letters? And where is the internal work, like internal movement work? I do think letters like that can be a helpful part of a larger toolbox. Translating certain words into Korean or into um, Mandarin or into any other language could be useful. Our relatives might be more open to having these conversations if we're able to have them in a language where they feel more secure in, you know, and they don't feel like you're talking down to them using English words that they've, they're not familiar with. Part of the issue, and, and this kind of goes into the performative part of what we're noting is that, is it simply a matter of copy-pasting the same letter? and then translating it into multiple cultural contexts, and not just cultural context, but family context. My relationship to my parents is going to be pretty different in, in many significant ways than maybe other Chinese Americans' relationship to their parents. There might be similarities, but I think part of the work is also honoring difference. And so I, I think about like how much community and relationship building are these acts of sharing on Instagram? Does it instigate conversation? Do you then use those conversations to build deeper relationship? And what Darian was saying too, or Asha, I forgot who said this, but it was like, is this a matter of simply needing to correct your incorrect relatives? Or I have the right racial consciousness and they have the wrong one. And this letter is a way to correct that. Because if that's the intention, that kind of does bring in that whole, like, are we trying to go towards a white liberal framework of racial justice? Or rather, is it an invitation for further relationship and conversation? Are we allowing room for the fact that once you start these conversations about race and identity and culture, you may learn just as much from your relatives as they're going to learn from you. Um, Certainly my personal experience has been when I've opened these conversations with my parents in good faith, I've learned a lot from them. You know, and, and some of what I've learned from them are uncomfortable because they don't fit into a necessarily, quote unquote, liberal framework that I've been taught in, in university or, or speak to with with my friends who are university educated in that manner. And And what do I do when their stories don't exactly fit into that framework? Do I just shut it aside or do I actually try to expand my own imagination to realize that while frameworks for going towards racial justice are helpful when our own lives and cultures don't fit into it we shouldn't try to just you know violently fit it into that we should actually try to reimagine and expand those frameworks
4: yeah i'm thinking about what you're saying lily and i just remember this google doc that i want to say was from 2014 and it is somewhere like saved in one of my emails wherever i'd access it but it just had basically pages and pages where people were expected to come plug in with, you know, if you know if you know a specific language to then translate it into that language. And I think this one was focused on a lot of South Asian languages. But I want to say that this was in 2014 and around the police murder of Mike Brown. And so you had just pages on pages of direct translations from, you know, English to Malayalam to Tamil to Telugu to Gujarati to Hindi and so like so many ones. But the material wasn't changing one by one. And so what does it mean to just translate it into the different languages? But when a lot of these are very different histories. And so if you're going to have something translated, um, you know, if if you're whoever the recipient is, you know, there might be a different, you know, way to get to the same point. And then I'm thinking about the fact that at the end of the day it's a point and not really a conversation, right? Like so much of this is about starting conversations and Giving a relative a letter in a language that they might be more comfortable with might either mean that the person who's giving that letter is not comfortable to continue this conversation in a shared frame of language, but it also might mean that it's just the letter. And at that point, it's not even starting that conversation around education or having that, you know, here's where we're coming from to try to understand how we can shift where an older or you know that relative is but it, it doesn't even necessarily always allow for a conversation to come from that letter. And so at the end of the day, yeah, like, what is, what is it exactly doing? What is exactly its point?
3: This might be a good time to ask one of the questions that I've been most interested in that I brought up last time, a couple of things. One, um, when we talked about the notion of Asian Americanness, all of you immediately started talking about the different dimensions and aspects of it and the, and the tensions in it. And so I wanted to know two things. One, in relation to letters, which is for each of you guys, how do you see letters like that working in your community? Do you think it's gonna to lead to people like being more likely to vote for certain things? Do you think it's gonna be people to support causes? Do you think it'll help them support you in particular, which are all can be viable things or something else I'm not thinking about, which I think it's great. And I also want to know um, within your um, different communities or communities that you can see or a part of, where do you see like, like, where do you envision like realistic linkages between Black communities or Indigenous, or I mean, we start with Black because that's just the topic of this conversation, but Black communities and the communities that you're a part of, or cause I know that different communities might have would have different relations or different opportunities. I haven't been able to re- flex the muscle of synthesizing
1: these conversations or even just like having these conversations. So these questions aren't even asked to me. I'm usually the one trying to initiate these with my peers who are usually Southeast Asian who come from backgrounds who are more lower class, working class. So to be concrete, I'm a part of these two Facebook groups. One is called Asian Americans for Black Power. The other one's called the Vietnamese Solidarity and Action Network. Both of them started up at the same time around the beginning of June, but they came from wildly different levels of preparation. The VSAN, which I'll abbreviate um, the Vietnamese Solidarity Action Network, came from a network of people who have many years in doing organizing work, and they had a lot of preparation going into making this group, whereas the aa 4 bp was created by some students at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities who wanted to just talk to their own peers about this. It started off being called Yellow Peril Supports Black Power, that banner slogan from the 60s, right, where you see these East Asian folks who are holding signs talking about Yellow Tiger supporting Black Panthers. And because of that broad historical moment being captured in the titling of this group, people are like, oh, yeah, I recognize that. I see the signaling happen- happening there and I want to align myself with that- those values. And so all these people started flooding in just the AA for BP group. However, the people in that group versus the VSAN group were a lot of students who, are, who have some sense of what social justice is or racial justice, justice as a broad category. But in terms of what they talked about, about, it was in the vein of Letters for Black Lives, in the sense of my parents have these racist, these bigoted postures, they they said some racist things, and I don't know how to talk to them about that, will you help me, other Southeast Asian Asian people who probably are in the same boat. Not that there haven't been good conversations, but after a month and a half, the solutions have plateaued. It hasn't moved beyond talking about supporting Blackness in this nebulous way. Yeah. With the Sang group, they do a lot of the translating work for Vietnamese people specifically. Like, I think the benefit of this ethnically specific group is that people can speak to the more nuanced tensions within that—that that is intra to the ethnicities. And there are multiple ethnicities. There's the Kin, which is like the majority, and then there's like the Montanard's. I'm only starting to learn about these minority ethnicities in Vietnam and learning about Southeast Asian history and seeing the value of folks from their own affinity group, whether that's ethnic or ethnic gendered, otherwise being able to talk to each other in more granular detail rather than like this broad umbrella of like Asians for Black power, which ends up being unwieldy.
2: To answer kind of the more specific question about the letters, I've seen it circling around, but personally I haven't really heard a lot of stories of the conversations that actually can come from those letters. And and that's what worries me or, or makes me feel some type of way is that the translation and the sharing of the letters happen within groups of Asian Americans who are already progressive. And, and that's where it lends itself to maybe it's an inner group signaling of like, you know, we are more progressive than other Asian Americans. You know, there's this huge Facebook group, Subtle Asian Traits and it's been kind of covered a little bit and very interesting politics in, in that. Then there's like subgroups of that that I've seen that are like progressive subtle Asian traits or like subtle Asian mental health groups, you know, that are, that are more progressive, so to speak. In kind of interesting ways, I also see that the splintering of this very large group into smaller groups is also an attempt to, like, distance oneself from the larger group and to say, like, I'm not of the politics of everyone in this large, subtle Asian traits group. And, and maybe in some ways, I see that the letters and some of that a signaling away from, you know, we're not part of the more conservative elements of our community. We don't own that. I mean, we saw that with you know, the killing of George Floyd as well. Um, And in the same website, I think, time to say goodbye. There was also another article about this idea of distancing oneself from the Asian officer at the scene, and how that can be problematic in its own way, because it's kind of saying, we don't own this member of our community because they're acting as part of the police state, or they're not having the same politics as we do. I think now is the time that's right for this. My hope is that within those Instagram posts and people posting those letters, that people can actually get more involved with local community organizing, because, and this is maybe true, what you were talking about, the difference between the two groups, because, I just moved to Connecticut. Before I moved to Connecticut, I was in Boston. I was a community organizer and I was very involved in Chinese Progressive Association there, which did a lot of work around tenant rights and especially diminishing properties of Chinatown. Also, Viet Aid, which is based in in Dorchester, which is the neighborhood of Boston, was also working. And so a lot of Asian American organizing on the ground in Boston was around tenant rights. And there was a lot of solidarity among Asian American organizers African American organizers and Latinx organizers because rising rent is something that impacts everyone in Boston. And there's a lot of overlap. And there's a lot of, you know, and there was a lot of working class white folks who were also involved in that. And so there it was a very multiracial, multi-generational coalition that formed um, that is still currently fighting for more access what I find kind of interesting is Boston City Council, Boston mayoral race are held all by Democrats. You know, Democrats also hold both the House and the Senate in, in their state legislature. And yet, you know, it's a multi-year fight and, and very, very basic tenant rights take years. And then by the time they're passed, they're not even that pertinent to the current issues. Anyway, that's a more larger conversation about disillusionment with electoral politics. But this tension between what is happening online and what is being shared online versus what's happening in you know, those issues around tenant rights or healthcare or public transportation being a big one. Those are the three big ones that a lot of organizing is around. My hope is that the energy that we can see online can be translated in person, um, which then, I mean, it's kind of an interesting moment now with both the energy for organizing, but also with COVID, <laughs> you know, because, because my advice to people would be, go to a community meeting. There's a lot of community meetings. Go to a march, go to the state house. You know, the state house is not even open for people to go in right now. Um, but you know, but I just got an email from one of my old organizer's friends. They're doing an online phone orientation um, to to organize around um, the next phase of tenant right organizing. So obviously, there's still a lot that's happening, but yeah, I think that's that's my hope and kind of to answer your question, Darian too.
4: Yeah, I'm I'm thinking immediately about something that Jeff Agui, who was a guest on our first episode of this Beyond the Beyond Allyship series, had pointed out. And I, I found myself at first feeling like, oh, this is such a, a pessimistic statement. And then I, I found myself thinking about like the context that we're all living in and realizing, oh, this is actually quite realist. And and I may be adopting this dated mentality myself, thinking about, you know, whether or not folks actually went out to protest or folks actually left their homes to go do something just because we're living in the context of COVID. Whether any of those people would have done that if they hadn't had as flexible of a nine-to-five day as they might have with a work-from-home circumstance. And, you know, whether or not that means that, especially thinking about folks who are setting themselves up as, as allies, would in that alternate reality have ever set themselves up that way. I find it, like, less concerning for me generally when I'm thinking about, you know, like, is a white person, you know, going out and protesting or not? Not to be the question that I'm asking myself. I'm asking non-Black POC, would they still have lost their house to go out and protest or to go and take these actions? have they not been in this particular COVID context? Have it not been convenient and easy to do so? Just to go back to your question, Darian, I have never known anyone personally who has used any of those letters I have never used one of those letters. Nobody I know personally has used one. So I've never been able to ask if it worked. But I think that's also what makes me doubtful. And I think that falls in Lily with kind of what you're saying. That like probably the, the people who need to be having these conversations may not be the people who are touting the letter. They may be that the folks who are writing the letter are not even the ones using it. I've seen it like post in Facebook groups. I've seen links like passed through mass emails. But I don't actually know if they've ever come to utility.
3: Seems like why that author wrote that le- that that essay. Then that, that we're referencing, it's very clear now. These are all great responses, but Asha, what you were saying, and what that the person you had on before, it brings up this this important notion that politics is linked a lot to economics. I, I get what you're saying; huh? it's a little too pessimistic, but it's real. It's realist in a certain sense. On the one hand, it's it's kind of deflating a sense of like, wow, there's a moment. But I think I think there was realness in that moment. But I think there's also an aspect that our economic structure is designed such that politics is not really a part of that. You know, democracy is a lot of work. You have to know a lot about a lot of issues and give a lot of your time. And we have not decided to invest the spoils of our empire, even in our political institutions, so that we have lots of time to be able to research issues and be active and involved. So I think it does reveal the opportunities that we're witnessing are able where we don't have to work so much.
2: Oh, I love that quote democracy is a lot of work. I, I might, you know, embroider it and give it to you as a gift one day, there. <laughs> hey. Yeah, I really, really resonate with that. That's like the number one thing that I learned from my work as a community organizer. It, not just that it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of boring and unglamorous and emotionally difficult work. Um, because I, I think, and you know, this goes back to the moment thing, is that it can be really, exhilarating and exciting to be part of a moment. Um, Even the young people that I was talking to last week were telling me of the joy and the solidarity that they felt marching. And I was like, I was so happy for them, you know, and I wasn't about to take the wind out of the sails of an (laughs) 11-year-old who went on a march in her neighborhood. I
3: appreciate you, Lily. It's very kind.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I was like, You'll, life will get you later, but I won't right now.
3: (laughs) I I take back what I said.
2: (laughs) But, um, but, but I I think, you know, one thing I kind of want to, maybe this takes the conversation in a different direction, but I think it's something that, you know, we're all pretty interested in is the idea of what does it mean that because being anti-racist or being anti-white supremacist um, or, or combating anti-blackness is, has more cultural cachet now, it has more mainstream recognition, um, it makes me reflect upon what does it mean to kind of industrialize the work of combating racism? So, so, so I think we we talked about this a bit before, and in our chat about you know the nonprofit industrial complex, which is a large word, but really I think what it means is that, um, and and what I understand of the history is that there were a lot of very radical movements that were happening in the United States in the mid um, 20th century. A lot of um, Black Power movements, feminist conscious raising movements. Um, you know, even socialism and Marxist organizing happening in the United States. And through very deliberate actions from the federal government through infiltration, um, a lot of those movements were severely compromised. And, and I think that this is my understanding of the history of it is that through that um, deliberate attacks, some of those movements then sought to gain legitimacy through, nonprofit status, through becoming an organization, with a board of directors, with a um, 501c3 tax filing, you know, um, or c4, if you're feeling very spicy, c3 is, um, you know, your your political organization, but you're not allowed to directly engage in legislative lobbying, like telling people who to vote for. And then c4 is, um, you know, if you do want to, if you do want to tell your members who to vote for things like that. Um, I was with the nonprofit and through the process of turning from a C three to C four. So anyway, that's <laughs> neither here nor there. But um but I think that because certain movements or organizations became more quote-unquote legitimate in the eyes of the federal government, yes, it protected them from that level of attack and infiltration, but that also means that a lot of the money that they have come from large foundations, and that money comes with strings. Um, And so when people talk about the nonprofit industrial complex, it's talking about the whole process of what does it mean to become legitimate in the eyes of the federal government? What does it mean to have a tax filing status? What does it mean to get your money from large foundations? which, to be honest, most of those large foundations get a significant chunk of their money from corporations that are causing the harm in the first place. Um, And it becomes this cycle. And so the work that these nonprofits do then are shaped by how are we going to get the next grant, you know, to pay our workers, you know, to provide them health insurance. It's not a nefarious plot. It's just like, how do we continue feeding ourselves and our employees? um, And, and I think that this this new or new-ish thing of like anti-racism, it's not that new. I mean, you know, it's been around for a long time, but I think in particularly this moment, it becomes salient. Um, and then another thing that I'm reflecting on specifically to do with Asian and Black solidarity is this idea of people of color being a word, being a term, being an identity, so to speak, uh, because a lot of the, you know, the Nonprofit work, this industrialization of anti racism, I think that this whole idea of like people of color feeds into it so much as it started off as solidarity between different racial groups. But what I've seen that has happened with this name, with this identity, is it actually uh, diminishes the differences within different communities of color. You know, I think that at least for me, personally, as someone who's East Asian, who's light-skinned, who went to a very well-known and prestigious university is, I've witnessed how a lot of white organizations want to hire me for their racism training work. They see me as someone perhaps more palatable or more safe. Um, And... And that's that that's really troubling. Um but but the other thing I will say is what's very interesting to me is when I go into those organizations and I don't act in the way they thought I was gonna act. If I become more vocal about, you know, hey, we need to not just be talking about racism in our organization, but really if we're talking about that, we need to put our money where our mouth is, we need to be talking about uh, police brutality against Black folks, if we need to be talking about specific issues, not just a nebulous anti-racism work, then the way that I get treated um, is becomes a lot more aggressive and becomes a lot less safe for them to interact with me. And I think that's also shown me that, you know, these identities that we hold and how we're treated and how other people see us can be, be very fluid in, in some ways.
4: Lily, something that you were saying that I think stands out. And I know, True, you had mentioned the corporatization of white fragility by Robin D'Angelo as part of that conversation. There's the statistic, and I'm trying to locate it as we're speaking, that you know, folks of color, as they enter workplaces, and as they tend to be the folks who are experiencing and noticing and reacting to racial discrimination within those corporate spaces, what will happen to, and I, I want to say person of color because I don't remember if it's broken down by, um, by racial identity, but that those folks will will suffer from a lack of promotions or there'll be a significant negative effect right on their future within that workplace but then there's a other side of that coin which is when white folks do that type of work when they speak up when they notice they are more likely to be promoted to get the bonus there is a significant positive effect on their experience within that workplace and i think it comes out i want i'm going to locate the study but i think it comes out with that significant statistical effect being able to be quantified is able to be seen in terms of capital and then promotion upwards which is just kind of an addition to that conversation in terms of what it means to be palatable what it means if somebody is on paper maybe what that corporation wants at the end of the day the moment a person of color opens their mouth to speak about what is going on they face immediately those negative statistical effects
3: yeah these are this is a great discussion about the notion of um People of color and how that relates to the differences and and um, among the groups. When Lily, when you're talking about the fact that because of your your East Asian and your light skin and there's a lot more comfort that white people have with that, my first reaction was like, as a and from a strategic from a tr- strategical point, that doesn't really bother me that much, right? That's white people have, and that but that's that's something that sh- that you guys might have issue with, but I'm saying like. If, we can, if we're building a movement together, I think it might be more effective. If white people like East Asian people, then we can figure out how to get you guys in those spaces and you can do the kind of disruption or resource siphoning or, or influence and in education that might be useful. I think that that is different than the goal of getting more South Asian or Southeast Asian people into those spaces to do that work. And I'm not entirely sure and when it comes to the, the question of transforming our racial configuration or helping black people or helping uh asian americans i'm not exactly sure how those two things link one seems like we can it's effective we can use different ways the other seems like it could have its own issues, its own benefits, but the one of trying to get a more of a wide variety of Asian Americans into these positions to me seems much more in this kind of liberal framework that is being critiqued. Though I do understand that there are real financial outcomes to that, that's just how I how I see it. I also see that it relates to the notion of people of color, which does obscure the differences within groups, but it does seem like there's a common experience of, of relation to whiteness that is the focal point of that identity, but it may not be good enough, right? This is why there are some people like, this is why we just be about class anyway. You know, this is not going to work. Um, there's too much variety in between these groups of people. But I also think there seems like there is space for us to come together with an angle of how we're going to try to deal with white supremacy, how we're gonna try to deal with the racial caste system that we're in, maybe simultaneously other spaces for more linkages between within the groups. But that's why I asked the question, like because uh, I do but I don't I do think that exploration is important. And this is why I asked the question that from for you guys, what kinds of groups of among that you know would be more likely to be involved in a multiracial solidarity project, right? There are different I know there are different class levels and caste systems and ethnicities and things like that. That might be a way that we could break apart the people of color and just focus on Who are some of these groups or people or organizations that actually would be worth reaching out to? And maybe we shouldn't just, as a Black person, maybe I shouldn't just go try to talk to people who are Asian American or part of an Asian American progressive association. Maybe I should try to find particular ethnicities or classes or groups of people within Asian American identity moniker that might be more fruitful.
4: I'm curious about that question, Darian. I'm thinking immediately about movements that exist in parallel to the movement for Black liberation within the US. And that feels like a fruitful place to begin because obviously when movements are already in parallel or at least have hands reaching out to one another, that can almost always lead to a more fruitful conversation because folks are already within the same plane of conversation. For me, thinking about the caste abolition movement, folks like thinking about, you know, Dalit Panthers, thinking about the connection Mm -hmm. to the American Black liberation movement, thinking about letters back and forth, those seem like immediately places to start. If it's like, okay, what group within the larger political identifying group you start having those conversations with. But then I think there's also the other side in my mind that is those folks are already having these conversations and may already be doing this work and this labor and like would have made those connections immediately. Just to take Equality Labs or ASADA as like immediate examples that have been doing work within these spaces, those are already clear that those efforts are already being made or were being made even before this current context that we're in, right? Before the murder of George Floyd, those synergies already already existed. And now I'm speaking, right, as a non-Black POC, the question is about who has the least amount of education in this space. And it's not going to be the people, obviously, who have been doing that labor. And that's where I see as a person of my privileges, oh, this is a conversation I have to place on my back, right? Like this has to be on my shoulders, because without any education, there's no way to get folks who are not already part of the movement to join the movement. That's kind of where my head goes first.
1: Yeah, thank you for that, Asha and Darian. I'm going to pull back to what you said at the start, Asha, of like you hubbing with your circles around anti-ICE and anti-deportation type movements and correct me if I'm wrong and add on as you need. And those are inroads for people to move and sustain enthusiasm or fire that keeps them in some kind of lane, a lane of movement within the broader storm of movements.
2: One thing I was thinking about in particular was this moment of the third world solidarity that I don't think is as common now. It's a topic I'm very interested in and I'm interested in educating myself further on because I think there is something different about that phrasing third world solidarity than say POC solidarity. Because I think one, it highlights colonialism as front and center in some ways. It also highlights, I think, class and wealth. But I mean, obviously there's a variety of racial dynamics associated with it. Darren, you were talking about class in particular. And that's something I think about a lot, especially obviously within the Asian American community. So for example, I come from a background where my family is Han Chinese, which is the ethnic majority in China. I always preface it by saying class is a bit complicated when you talk about it generationally, if you come from China, quote-unquote mainland China, or non-Hong Kong and not the folks who went to Taiwan and have their own governing system and their own country, you know, this idea of generational wealth, generational class is totally different in a context when you had a Cultural revolution and you had class struggle and you had an overturning of things. On the other hand, after Mao passed and Deng Xiaoping came to power, China now today is not a communist utopia by any means. And I have always observed to people, because I grew up in Shanghai, that I think Shanghai is the most capitalistic place I've ever been to in my life, including New York City. (laughs) Um, I think there's a lot of different reasons. But where I was going with this is that I've been thinking a lot about, and your question of like, should I just go talk to all the Asians? Or like, are there specific people? How does class play into it? My family comes from an ethnic majority. My parents are very much invested in the project of starting Generational wealth. They view that as a way to gain more legitimacy within the United States. And I think that they understand, and I see a lot of wealthy Chinese Americans who see education in certain higher education institutions as part of this cultural capital. They now begun to be awakened to the fact that actually just having money is one thing, but having political power is a different thing. And so I see a lot of that kind of organizing that's happening among very wealthy Chinese-Americans, Han Chinese-Americans. And what I find very interesting about that kind of awareness is that the lines of Democrat and Republican are much less staunchly firm. In fact, I've seen a lot of, oh, donate to Asian candidates. To them, it's like, oh, you're Democrat, you're Republican. Oh, you're Chinese-American. Basically, mostly Chinese-American. I want to donate to you because seeing more Chinese-Americans elected office will give us more cultural power. But I've seen that a lot of candidates of vastly different platforms. You know, some of when I wanted to run for political office at one point in my life and a lot of my parents' friends are like, oh yeah, we'll donate to you like all this money. And you've even asked me what my platform is. Like, do you understand that I will be taxing you a lot more? (laughs) The frameworks of liberalism and conservatism don't perfectly mesh into the different communities that we're a part of. I think we have to reimagine even that political spectrum, so to speak. From my conversations with many of my Latinx friends, there's a very similar dynamic as well. This spectrum is not, it's not so clear and it's not so linear. I'm starting to think about it, so I don't have any like great conclusions. It excites me and it makes me curious because I think that that's a new and exciting path. What does these racial identities mean? What does conservatism and liberalism mean? Because I think that the old definitions of those don't work. We've seen that those old models of political identification at the end of the day, served similar powers of wealth and of empire. And so I'm excited to see what happens next.
3: Yeah, and that's basically why I asked the question. It wasn't even so much that I wanted like specific answers because I was like, yeah, tell me. Like, no, not like that, but just, I think this discussion itself is very fruitful and useful for like the people that will be listening, me, myself included, to know what you guys think about this. You know, maybe there is a class dynamic that might be a problem with the Han Chinese community, right? Where they just, they're they're looking for cultural power. They believe that if they get you in there, you're enough like them that when it really matters, there's a few votes that really matter. (laughs) You know, you'll be on their side, you know, and they're fine with more taxes if the thing they really care about, you'll do. It's been great to hear you guys talk about these things. Yeah.
0: Thank you for joining us for this great conversation. We'll have more coming from Darian and Lily in the coming weeks, as well as conversations with campaign managers at 18 Million Rising and Empower Change, the executive directors at Freedom Inc. and more. How can we educate ourselves on anti-Blackness in our communities? How can we unpack internalized oppression and internalized supremacy? These questions and more on this series, Moving Beyond Allyship. We're excited to keep doing this work with you.